Strap on your minigun, it's time to join Eurocorp with Syndicate this week on the Upper Memory Block. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 15 of the Upper Memory Block podcast. As usual, I am your host, Joe, and we are back once again to talk about a game in the Dawson Pre-Windows XP gaming era. Get down deep into it and uh, figure out its guts and what made it and what made it interesting. So, uh, again, for the second week in a row, I have to apologize for the show being a little bit late. (laughs) This week was kind of the week from hell uh last weekend there was a long weekend up here it was canadian thanksgiving and so we actually uh went down to alexander city alabama to uh to visit fran's grandfather who uh who sadly isn't doing all that well uh with regard to his health and all of that so uh we had a couple of days down and flew into atlanta drove uh about two hours over to alexander city to his place and uh basically spent the weekend helping out and doing kind of things like that so it wasn't entirely a relaxing trip we got back late sunday night then went into work tuesday worked during the week all of that tried to get the podcast done but things kind of kept happening and uh to top it all off on thursday night i believe it was yes thursday night uh my wife fran was driving home from work in our uh, our second car a nicely beat up uh 2001 dodge or chrysler chrysler intrepid and uh, it broke down on her right in the middle of the highway. So, um, yeah, that wasn't the greatest situation either. And uh, we actually ended up scrapping that car. And uh, I think as of yesterday, have a, have a new Subaru Outback on order. And hopefully that'll come through uh, in the next little while. But, uh, yeah, just overall a very, very eventful week. And sadly, uh, the time it takes to do the podcast, which I usually record kind of Wednesday evening or Thursday evening, just kind of got pushed pushed over to the weekend like this so uh anyways hope no one's too upset and uh we still got a show coming out so uh that's that and let's get on to the news so since we last talked it's actually been uh quite eventful with regard to uh to news that's relevant to uh to the content of the show to a kind of you know old dos and pre-windows xp uh, PC games. So uh, it's been a while, firstly, since I've talked about uh, the two guys from Andromeda's Space Venture Project. Well, there's a bit of development on that front. So back when that Kickstarter project was still going on, uh, a group of Space Quest superfans over at SpaceQuest.net put together a small game called Pledge Quest. It was a fun, kind of really quick adventure game where you directed your character, B around her apartment to accomplish the goal of giving to the two guys Kickstarter. Well, now that that project is in stretch goal territory, Pledge Quest 2, Noodle Shop of Horrors, is out. Uh, The plot is described on the site as follows. Pledge Quest 2, Noodle Shop of Horrors, rejoins B right where we left her at the end of the previous game, on her way to lunch with her boyfriend, Roger. What begins as a sumptuous feast of noodly goodness quickly turns to catastrophe as B stumbles across a conspiracy so nefarious that it threatens the very future of the Two Guys Space Venture Project. What challenges await our intrepid heroine this time around? Here's a hint. They involve clicking things on other things. So uh, this game is actually over two times longer, or three times longer even, than the original, and even has a secret designer commentary mode. This is a really fun fan project that continues to promote the Two Guys Space Venture. Check it out, and maybe they will convince you to throw some cash at the Two Guys from Andromeda Space Venture Project if you haven't done that. You can find that. Uh, more info on Pledge Quest and Pledge Quest 2 over at pledgequest.net. And as usual, of course, I will link this in the show notes. Uh, secondly, in the news, I've been talking about uh, XCOM Enemy Unknown pretty steadily over the past couple of weeks in preparation for it coming out. So uh, XCOM Enemy Unknown has come out finally, and it is out to very, very good reviews overall. Uh, I'll link a, uh, an IGN review in the show notes. Uh, they're giving it an 8.2 out of 10. Uh, They say, well, it may not be quite as deep as the original XCOM game. It's a great addition to the strategy genre and really, really does evoke the same sense of, uh, you know, the same sense of of fear and, 
you know, anxiety and everything as the first game. This one's definitely on my check on my, you know, on my to checkout list. And, uh, you know, when I get some, some extra free time, I will definitely be buying it and, uh, and playing it. Cause it does sound like a lot of fun and it sounds like it might even be a tiny touch less frustrating than the original game, but still just frustrating enough to make it a good challenge in Sim City five news. I'm not sure if this is good news or not, but uh, GameSpy is reporting that this game will feature an always online mode with uh, cloud saving. Actually, it won't even be a mode. The game is always online and features only saving in the cloud. So what this means uh, you know, is that you won't be able, once you create a city, you won't be able to destroy it or restart it or anything like that. And also, you won't be able to do things like save like a checkpoint of your city and do different types of what-if scenarios. You know, like, what if I put in this many fire stations and what if I built things this way and, and, you know, develop this bridge over to this area and see what happens there. Is that going to work? Or if it doesn't, I'll just go back. You can't do that anymore. And, uh, you know, on top of that, you can't just straight up save your city and set it on fire or, you know, sick the aliens on it and see what happens. I mean, that was kind of a lot of, of the fun that people would have in, uh, in older SimCity games, even all the way up to the last version, SimCity 4, you know, because there's this great sandbox you could go in there and you could screw around and do kind of whatever you wanted. It's like you want to make a city in the shape of an X, you made a city in the shape of an X. If it didn't work, you started over. Or, you know, if you got tired or you got bored one day, you set your city on fire or you do all kinds of these different things. And, you know, with this kind of method that they have here with this cloud saving and the fact that your cities are persistent and you can't, you know, go back, you can't restart, you can't do things like that that may make it, you know, decidedly less compelling for certain people. I mean, I'm I'm definitely still buying this game. I'm definitely still very excited for it, but yeah, you know, this this news if it comes out the way they're describing it to be is makes it, you know, a little bit less compelling. And I think for for a lot of people it may even you know, they may decide not to purchase it at all just just based on that. So, you know, I guess like everything else we will see how that uh, how that turns out. Finally in the news, this is some big news. I got very, very excited about this. Uh, this was initially posted over on the on the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash UMBcast. But uh, it turns out that if you go way back um, to episode two of the show, when I covered Wing Commander, I talked a lot about uh, Chris Roberts, the creator of that series. Well, it turns out that Chris Roberts took a little break from the game industry for the past little while, but now it seems that he is back with a very, very, very ambitious game project called Star Citizen and Squadron 42. Now, this is a really cool project, and it seems like Chris Roberts is trying to take all the different Wing Commander games and Freelancer and kind of this whole space military, space sim action trading kind of whole thing that he developed over years and all of his different games and he's trying to mash them all together into one really big kind of persistent online game so uh, i have a little clip of of his promo video here where he explains a little bit of things so i'll play that and because obviously chris roberts can uh, explain his ideas a lot better than i can hi i'm chris roberts ever since i saw star wars as a wide-eyed eight-year-old i dreamt of being a hotshot pilot saving the galaxy or a lovable rogue making my way across the cosmos it inspired me to make Wing Commander and has influenced everything I've done since then. Ten years ago, after 20 years of making games, I was burned out so I took a break. But I never stopped playing games nor loving them. And now, I'm ready to come back. And I'd like to show you something I've been working on. But I don't want to build any old game. I want to build a universe. I want to build a game I always wanted to build, but I didn't have the tools to do until now. One that you can fly off a carrier fighting a heroic war on the front lines, but also one that you can muster out and find your own fortune in the stars wherever your spaceship takes you. I want to be able to share this experience with my friends and fight against real opponents in space, not just AI. And I want this to be as good or better than any other game out there. And I want to actively push the boundaries of what you can do in a game. None of this would have been even possible two years ago. But with Moore's Law driving PC performance and cost and the gaming community embracing talented developers via crowdfunding, I believe it is possible today. I've never been accused of having a small vision. And so I thought it was best if I share my ambition with you visually. I'm pretty excited by how it's joined out. So why don't you come join me for a sneak peek? What I'm building, you know, the Star Citizen Squadron 42 combination, you essentially have 
both things available to you. So Squadron 42 is the sort of single-player experience where you are getting missions. You're in the military, so you know it's not that open world because you're going to be going AWOL if you decide you want to go off to some other planet. So the idea of it is you, you, you serve a campaign, you fly missions, it's branching just like Wing Commander was, and you have exactly that Wing Commander experience with the added bonus of some multiplayer and your friends be able to sort of co-op play with you as wingmen when you fly your missions. But when you finish your tour of duty, you muster out and you're in the wide universe and then it's open world. You can go where you want, do what you want, choose who you want to be. And the other thing that's nice about this is you don't have to do Squadron 42. You can get into the star unit. You can basically decide you're never going to go fight in the military. You can decide that I'm just going to be a merchant or I'm just going to be a pirate. I think what we're talking about here has everything that made Wing Commander great and has everything that made Privateer and Freelancer great. It's, it basically has both things and the single player sort of military campaign side sits inside this whole universe in a holistic fashion. The idea is that it should be dynamic. So I've talked about a sort of the universe being a living entity and something that's always changing and it's gonna change based on the player's actions. So things that players do will have an effect on the universe and they'll also be able to become part of the universe. So a good example is say a player that's an explorer and they explore around enough time and they find a space anomaly and then they manage to navigate a jump. That jump point and the system that they've jumped into will get named after that player. So like that player becomes part of the history and lore of the universe. And on top of that, you know, we're going to be dynamically adding content to these universe. I'm not interested in having yearly updates. We'll have a team of people that are adding content on a weekly, uh, you know, every two weeks basis. So you're starting this system and you're starting the game and it's got 50 star systems, for instance, and, you know, uh, two weeks in, a jump point's discovered for another system and someone navigates it and bam, we've got a 51st system and so on. So yeah, that just sounds so incredible. And my Lord, if they can pull this off, uh, I know he is trying to raise $2 million. And uh, I think this project only came to, it only started up about this week, I think maybe on Wednesday or Thursday of, of this week. And uh, I'm not 100% sure where they're at now I because I, their, their site had some issues. They're actually not using Kickstarter. They're trying to gather money kind of directly via their own site, robertsspaceindustries.com. And uh, last I heard, I poked around on the forums a little bit. Since they were having some technical issues, they had a counter there, but uh, it's it's since kind of been taken down and will be put back up once the, the initial traffic dies down. And uh, last I heard, they were up around half a million dollars. So, I mean, in, in one day, they, they got about a quarter of the way to their goal. So that's pretty impressive. And um, and yeah, so, I mean, if, if you guys are interested in this, please go watch the video. They've already created kind of a bit of a game engine, and it's just beautiful, beautiful looking. I mean, the, the graphics are so incredible. And if the game looks like this, they're aiming for it to come out in early 2014. And um, and yeah, go check it out. It's um, you know, despite the fact they're not using Kickstarter, there's still reward tiers and all of that kind of thing. So yeah, Star Citizen Squadron 42, Chris Roberts, Roberts Space Industries, go check it out. This is really really great news. Finally, in the news, uh, just something I'm going to add in at the last minute. Um, I found out earlier, uh, I think maybe on Friday, that uh, MechWarrior Online which has been in closed beta and uh, which I, which I've been in and I've been experiencing and, and, you know, having a, a decent time in is, uh, is going to open beta. So uh, it's free to play, which I, so I believe, I don't know if you're going to need an invite to the open beta or not. I think that kind of defies the definition of an open beta, but um, go check it out at mwomercs.com and you can check out um, what the, what the status is of the open beta. And if you want to give it a whirl, blow up some, uh, some of your friends and big robots, then, uh, go check that out to MechWarrior online open beta. Woohoo. You're listening to the podcast. All right. Before we get into things shortly after the last show, I received an email from, uh, Andreas, who is becoming a somewhat regular emailer to the show. So thank you, Andreas. And, uh, he writes, Hi, Joe. First of all, I'd like to react to the guy who played CNC with his dad. It just sounds like such an amazing father-son moment, and how he still thinks back of it today really touches me. I hope I will be able to have a similar thing with my kids if I ever have any. Also, since the international listener thing came up, I'm a Belgian guy living in Japan. How's that for an international audience? Winking. Smiley face. 
I've never played the original DOS version of Syndicate, but me and my friends did play the SNES version a lot. I'm sure there are loads of differences and the DOS version is likely superior, but the SNES version was a great game in its own right. To be completely honest, we were 12 years old and just loved being gangsters and killing people. We didn't understand the story at all, but had fun nonetheless. Quite often, we would just make up our own stories as well. Looking forward to the episode, I feel like this is a game I played a lot, but know little about. I'll probably learn a thing or two. Well, thanks for that, Andreas. And, you know, I, I said it last week, and, and I'll say it again. It's, it's so great that, uh, you know, these games and other things like them can, can help you pull, you know, the good out of a poor situation and can help you create great memories. Like, the reason I do this podcast is because I have such positive memories of these games, you know, playing with my friends and talking about them and figuring out how to get them to work and all of that stuff. So thanks again for that email. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for So, like Andreas said in his email, uh, let's get into the overview and hopefully learn a few things about today's topic, Syndicate. So, Syndicate is a series of three games created and developed by Bullfrog Productions and published by Electronic Arts. The first game, simply called Syndicate, was released in 1993. As we tend to do, let's chat genre. Syndicate is a real-time tactics game. So while this is a genre we haven't seen directly before, we've seen two other genres in the same wheelhouse, I guess we could say, as this one. Uh, Turn-based tactics with XCOM and real-time strategy with Command and Conquer. While it's quite similar to these two genres in that it focuses on you know combat, command, and control, it does differ from both of them in a few different ways. So real-time strategy games tend to focus on resource management, gathering, production, unit training, base building, and all those things kind of at the same time and at the same time as combat is taking place. They tend to have you wearing quite a few different hats at once and balancing your attention between both combat and logistics. Uh, Real-time tactics games don't bring this variety of responsibility and constant need for task switching. They focus much, much more on tactical and operational aspects of warfare. So what this means is that instead of moving around units, building new ones, defending your base, developing technology, and all that, you are solely focused on your currently assigned units. You worry about their equipment, you worry about their formation, positioning, and degree of independence that they have from your control. So that shows us how this type of game differs from RTS games like Command & Conquer or Warcraft, but... It does sound quite a bit like XCOM, which we chatted about way back in episode four. So in XCOM, you did exactly this. The difference lies in the first part of the genre name, where XCOM is turn-based, allowing you to move your units, strategize, and take as much time as is needed to complete your turn. Syndicate is real-time. While you don't have to do all the juggling that you do in Command & Conquer, you do have to react to events as they happen. While you're trying to find a route to your target, enemies may be coming up behind you on the attack, or while you're defending yourself, your target may be moving off. I won't say the real-time form of tactics games are more interesting than their turn-based siblings, but they are certainly more fluid and more fast-moving. On to the story of Syndicate. Syndicate does exist in a very interesting world. You don't get very much in the way of exposition throughout the game, so the manual is really the place where you learn who you are, what your job is, why you're doing it, and who your agents are. Syndicate exists in a dystopian future of large multinational corporations wielding the power of government. Eventually, through the years of, through years of mergers and acquisitions, three mega-corporations remain, based respectively in the Americas, Europe, and the Far East. Though not elected as such, they controlled the populations of their territories via commerce, Unhappiness was pretty rampant. So to combat this, the European corporation, known as Eurocorp, developed a device known as the CHIP. That's C-H-I-P all in capitals. It's an acronym for something I am not quite sure what. Uh, The CHIP is a small electronic device that is inserted into the back of the neck. Once there, it stimulates the brainstem of the user, altering their perception of the outside world. This was better than any drug to the miserable populations living under under the yoke of these megacorps. The chip sold like hotcakes. Soon, almost every human on the planet was implanted with a chip. What the megacorps neglected to mention to the populace was that one small side effect of uh, chip use 
was that it left the user open to auto-suggestion. So it now appeared that control of the chip meant control of the population of the Earth. Of course, with any drug, soon enough the criminal element became involved. Lust for power and increased profits left the megacorporations open to infiltration. Using money earned by pirating chip technology, agents of the world's crime syndicates bribed and murdered their way onto corporate boards. Like the corporations did to the governments, so the syndicates did to the corporations. Before long, the crime syndicates controlled the megacorps and, by extension, the world. Now, these syndicates didn't use slow-witted, gun-toting thugs to solidify their control, but teams of cyborg-enhanced agents armored and under complete control of a young syndicate executive. These teams of syndicate agents hunt down rivals and traitors and spread the influence of the syndicates across the globe. This is where we begin the game. You are a young executive in a very small European syndicate looking to make your mark on the world. Now that we know the background of the world, let's get on to gameplay. As a low-level exec, you act as a de facto lieutenant, let's say, for a group of cyborg syndicate agents. Your task, should you choose to accept it, is to spread the influence of your syndicate across the globe. This is accomplished by completing up to 50 missions across the world map. So, I guess as usual, we should begin at the beginning. As the game begins, you have the option of creating your own custom syndicate. You can select your name, the name of the syndicate, a logo, and a color. The most important thing in this phase is the color. It's by this color that you can tell which territories you own on the world map. So you better choose a color that you like because hopefully you're going to be seeing a lot of it. Uh, so similarly to XCOM, Syndicate is split into two game modes. We start out in what I guess I'll call the map view or the management view. They don't seem to have a very specific name for it like they did in XCOM. As the game begins, you own no territory and you have no income. On the map, there's a single flashing territory in Western Europe. Clicking it brings you to the mission Briefing. Here we read that we are to perform an assassination. It turns out that an army colonel is stealing resources from our syndicate's weapon division and is using them to equip his mercenaries. Uh, his base has been set up just outside one of our cities and the populace have reported disturbances caused by his troops. So that's the basic information provided by the mission briefing. You have the option to go with the basic info and kind of a very crude map of the mission area. Of course, you have the option of spending some of your cash on extra intelligence. This is done in two ways. Firstly, the crude map you start with can be refined into a fairly detailed version. Secondly, you can get both a defense and target update. So if you spend the money on this first mission, you find out the camp is guarded by five guards armed with both, both pistols and shotguns. Spending a bit more money gives you a target update. We're told that the colonel is believed to reside in the building at the northernmost tip of the camp. If he's alerted to your presence, he may attempt to escape. If he does so, the mission will fail. Once you have all the information you're willing to pay for, you proceed to the team selection screen. From here, you can equip and modify your agents in preparation for the mission. You can take up to four agents with you on any given mission. Of course, the more agents you take, the more firepower you're gonna have. However, it also means you put more of your valuable agents at risk. At the beginning of the game, this isn't so awful, but once you start investing money into them, losing agents does become quite costly. So for the first mission, you can actually get away by bringing along a single agent. Though two is recommended in case something goes terribly wrong, it never hurts to have a backup. So once you decide how many agents you're bringing along, you can upgrade and equip them. While your agents are somewhat resilient by default, you won't survive long with them in their initial states. Each agent can be equipped with a variety of weapons and modifications to make them more deadly and increase their survivability. Weapons are straightforward. Initially, you have access to pistols and shotguns, and more advanced weaponry can be researched. Each agent is initially equipped only with a pistol. And, you know, so even for, the, for this first mission, it wouldn't hurt to give them a shotgun, because they're a little much, much more effective at close range than the pistol is. In addition, your agents can receive upgrades to their bodies. They can upgrade their legs for increased movement speed, arms for increased carrying capacity and less encumbrance from heavy weapons, uh, the chest increases protection, and in higher levels allows your agent to self-destruct to devastating effect. 
Uh, heart increases overall strength. And finally, the brain makes the agent more effective at independent decision-making and increases the effect of the Persuadatron, a very, very cool weapon that's very unique to this game. And uh, you know we'll get to that in uh, a little bit. So finally, the outside of mission or map or management section of the game allows you to control your syndicate's research focus and research funding. You can only research a single item at a time, and the amount of funding you allocate to a project determines its game time to completion. So mods, those being the arms, legs, eyes, you know, all that stuff, have a total of three tech levels, and uh, weapons are just researched by type. This is a very, very important aspect of the game. If you fall behind rival syndicates in technology, they will wipe the floor with you, especially with regard to mods. So after all this housekeeping is done, you take your selected agents and enter the mission. So as much as the management part of the game offers a lot of options for development and progression, the real meat of the game is here in mission. You're dropped into the mission screen and presented with a fairly simple interface. It's actually definitely much, much simpler than the massive buttons you were presented with in XCOM. Going down the left side of the screen, you have status boxes for up to four agents. Uh, underneath that, we have the currently selected agent's weapons inventory, and underneath that, we have a radar scanner also focused on the currently selected agent. The rest of the screen is taken up by an isometric view of the mission zone. Now, as much as the management part of the game was somewhat self-explanatory, the mission half required me to pull out the 60-ish page manual. Now, I did play a lot of Syndicate back in 1993, but the game controls and gameplay elements are just different enough from standard convention that even though I you know, have very fond memories of playing this game and remember all the stuff that happened and the music and all that, I had to look up the controls because frankly, I did not remember them. So to select an agent, you have to click on their status box in the left-hand menu. You cannot click on them directly in the mission view. On top of that, to select all your agents, there is a long, thin button in that same left menu to select all. You cannot click and drag a selection box on the mission zone, nor can you select two, three, or two or three of your four agents. It's one or all. When you click on an agent to select them, you hear one of these. Selected. Your agent's status readouts show a small image of your agent, and next to that, there's a vertical white health bar. Under that are three other bars which you could drag to left or right. This is your IPA meter, and it has nothing to do with beer. IPA stands for Intelligence, Perception, and Adrenaline. These three bars control injections of drugs to your agents, which modify their behavior when not under your direct control. Basically, increasing the levels of these drugs makes your agent more independent. So, intelligence controls the agent's reaction to situations, perception increases firing accuracy and makes them react earlier to threats, and, adre and adrenaline controls the speed of their reactions. Generally, you'd want to raise all three levels simultaneously, since keeping intelligence and perception low while cranking adrenaline makes your agents react erratically and shoot inaccurately, or raising intelligence and nothing else will cause your agents to react very slowly, likely taking hits before they would uh, get around to shooting back. So why, do you ask, would you ever put these levels at less than maximum? While these drugs help your agents perform, they are also habit-forming. As you use the drugs, your agents form a resistance to them and they become less effective. So setting these levels is a big part of the game, especially in later missions. In the first missions, you know, there isn't a ton going on, so you can kind of get around by uh, you know, keeping direct control of your agents and not having them, you know, do much on their own. But in addition to setting these high, you know, which would cause them to be more independent and would cause the resistance to the drugs to go up, you can also set the levels to low to decrease their dependence on the drugs. So a good strategy is to drop the levels to zero at the start to give your guys the most effective drug efficiencies when, you know, things start to hit the fan, let's say. So you observe the action from an airship floating above the mission area. You have access to the scanner, which shows the basic shapes of buildings and different types of people and vehicles. Civilians show up as little white dots, police as blue, bigger kind of circles, and enemy agents as red. Agents will always attack you, and police will only attack you if you have a weapon equipped. If you walk around, if you walk by a police officer with a gun out, you hear this. Please, put down your weapons. In addition, 
your mission objective is marked by an expanding circle with an audible ping signal on your scanner. So it's kind of like, you know, a radar scanner. It goes boom, boom, and the circle expands outwards, kind of like you'd see on, uh, on a submarine or something like that. So the closer you are, the more accurate the indication of your target's location is, and the more persistent the, uh, the beeping is. So your objective in the first mission is to assassinate this, uh, this army colonel. So you take your agent or agents through the map, avoid or kill the guards using your pistol at range and your shotgun closer in, you enter the building at the north end and kill the target. So this brings us to another odd limitation of the game engine. You actually can't see inside buildings. It makes sense from the aspect that you're sitting in an airship, but you'd think that your agents would be able to, I don't know, illuminate the area or something. Anyways, while you can't see inside buildings, your pointer will still change from an arrow to a targeting reticle when it hovers over a person, even if they're hidden inside a building. So this still allows you to take out targets in buildings even though you can't see them directly. In this case, killing the target ends the mission immediately. Mission completed. Other missions will require you to get all of your agents to a dust-off site represented by a red circle on the scanner. At times that'll be easy because everyone will be dead already. At other times, you know, you'll be running from overwhelming opposition and other things like that. Um, after your mission, you enter the debriefing screen, which reports mission status, completed or failed. Game time spent in the mission, how many kills you made, how many people persuaded, and your accuracy, and a whole bunch of other stuff like that. Uh, actually, you know, I just mentioned something there that uh, I do want to expand on a bit, and that is how many people you persuaded. So, as I mentioned a little while ago, one weapon you have in your arsenal is called the Persuadatron. This weapon allows you to take control of other people's chips and effectively turn them into your mindless followers. Persuaded people will follow you, pick up weapons dropped by dead enemies, and just, in general, help you out until they are most likely killed, because they are just civilians. Uh, if you return from a mission with these persuaded people, they are added to your cryo storage. This allows you to replenish your store of reserve agents if any of your agents are killed in missions. Persuasion strength is dependent on what level of brain modification you have installed. So no brain enhancement allows you to persuade any number of civilians. So you can persuade one civilian at a time. Uh, you would have to persuade four civilians to persuade a single guard, eight civilians to persuade a policeman, and 32 civilians to, uh, to get an enemy agent. Of course, each type of persuaded individual is worth different levels of points. So civilians are worth one persuasion point, guards are worth three, policemen four, and agents 32. So to persuade one policeman, you'll need five civilians and one guard. As you increase uh, your levels of brain mod, the requirements are all halved. So at the top level three upgrade, it only takes eight points to, conserve, to, to convert an enemy agent. So, you know, either eight civilians or, uh, you know, a couple of guards, something like that. Sorry, I'm tired and my brain can't do math right now. <laughs> when your mission is successful and uh, you exit the debriefing, you go back to the map view and you notice that your uh, syndicate's color is now taken on, or the, the area has now taken on your syndicate's color. So you now have control of this mission's area. So this first one being in Western Europe, you now control Western Europe. You can now set its tax rate. Uh, this is the main way you make money in the game. The trick here is to keep the tax rate as high as possible without making the population of your newly subjugated territory revolt. If one of your territories revolts or rebels, you need to go back in and pacify it, thereby adding an additional mission to your kind of progression to get that territory back so you can take over the whole world. So this is how the game progresses. You run missions, take over territory, and do that, all that over and over again until the final mission at the Atlantic Accelerator, a huge water and mineral research station floating in the polluted Atlantic Ocean. All the other remaining syndicates, I believe there's seven of them, have banded together against you because you've become so powerful by this time in the game. Completing this mission makes you the greatest syndicate on Earth and... Uh, you know, you are now in ultimate control of the planet and its fate. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for...
Okay, time for Tech Focus. Uh, Syndicate was somewhat interesting from a technical aspect as well as from a gameplay aspect like we just covered. So the original PC version of Syndicate required MS-DOS 5.0, a 386 processor, 560K of conventional memory, four megs of total RAM, a mouse, and uh, a double-speed CD-ROM for the CD-ROM version. I mean, this wasn't anything that was incredibly exceptional for the time, if I if I remember correctly, for about 1993. However, one thing is a bit special. Uh, with most games I've covered to this point, the game tends to be rendered in a single resolution and a single color depth. So, you know, last week we talked about Gabriel Knight. That was, you know rendered in 640 by 480 at 256 colors and uh and other games are all you know 320 by 200 vga this is not the case for syndicate i never actually noticed this until i did the research for this podcast but syndicate is actually rendered in mixed resolutions the interstitial parts of the game you know videos the management portion the game menus and all that are rendered in very standard 320 by 200 256 color vga you know, if I look at them with this in mind, yeah, you see, okay, fine, they're a little bit jaggy and whatever, but this is made up for by the extra color depth and, you know, they look just fine. Now, the mission portion of the game was rendered in 640 by 480, but it was only rendered at 16 colors. Uh, this was able, you know, by rendering at this higher resolution, they were able to make the game environments much, much more detailed, the sprites much smaller, and all that. But and so you say, okay, but 16 colors—that's awful. I mean, this game doesn't look like it's rendered in 16 colors. Well, what they did is a bit similar to what they did in Space Quest Three. Uh, they made use of pretty, pretty clever dithering effects. So they used all these little, like you know, stipple effects and different patterns. So even though they were only working with 16 colors, the game still had a very rich-looking color palette. I had no clue, honestly, that I was looking at 16 colors. Granted, the environments are somewhat brighter than they likely should be given the description of the world, but frankly, until now, like I said, I'd never questioned it. This mixed resolution approach was really quite novel for the time, and I think it works very, very, very well. The music for the game was MIDI, and sadly was designed to work only with the Sound Blaster's FM synth. Uh, there isn't a ton of music in the game, but uh, the tracks that are there are, are very, very eerie and very tension-filled. Uh, the game's music and sound were composed by Russell Shaw, who would go on to do much, much more game music. There's a small blurb from him in the game manual. Um, in it, Russell says the following. I started in the sound business working for Jerry Anderson on projects such as Dick Spanner and Space Police, after which I made the move into the music business and had the privilege of working with many top bands. My first bullfrog project was Syndicate, which I found both exhilarating and extremely frustrating. Putting sound to a game is like building a huge lorry and then trying to park it in next door's garage. So, you know, all that to say, this was one of his first uh, projects of bullfrog, maybe one of even his first game projects. And, uh, you know, despite the fact, like I said, there isn't a ton of music, I think it's, it's really, really well done. To the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for... So we just had a little taste of dev story back there in, in the Tech Focus segment on the music, but now let's get into the real meat of things. So I've said it in the podcast already, but I played this game a lot back in the day, and I was very aware of Syndicate. I was very aware of other Bullfrog projects. The one big, huge fact that I totally missed was the name of the man behind the Syndicate series, Peter Molyneux. Now, I'm a huge fan of Peter Molyneux and his Fable series. Of course, that series is console-based, and for that reason, I kind of automatically assumed all of his other work was console-based as well, which means I'd never get to talk about him on this show, since we only concentrate on uh, PC games. Well, I was mistaken. Uh, the mind behind Syndicate is, of course, Peter Molyneux. So he was born May 5th, 1959 in Guildford, Surrey, the United Kingdom. Back in 1982, Molyneux was working distributing floppy disks containing video games for the Commodore 64 and Atari. 
Seeing the games were selling very well, he decided to make his own game. He called it Entrepreneur. It was a business simulation representing starting and running a small company. Molyneux was convinced it would sell millions of copies. He was convinced to the point that he has said in an interview that he cut a larger letterbox into his home in anticipation for the flood of mail orders that would come in for this game. Of course, Murphy's Law being what it is, the game received a total of two orders. And Peter is convinced to this day that both of those orders were from his mother, even though she denies it. With this failure under his belt, he decided game development wasn't for him. He and his business partner, Les Edgar, started another company together called Taurus Impex Limited. This company exported baked beans to the Middle East, which is, I think is quite a switch from, uh, from video game design. Interestingly, though, another company existed called Taurus, spelled T-O-R-U-S, instead of uh, you know, the traditional Latin spelling T-A-U-R-U-S, which is what Molyneux's company was called. Someone at Commodore mistook Molyneux's bean exporter as this networking company and offered them 10 free Amiga systems. After a small crisis of conscience, Molyneux took the computers and built Acquisition, a database system for the Amiga. With the completed database system in hand, he explained himself to Commodore and released the DB system to moderate success. Now we come to 1987. With this success backing them, Molyneux and Edgar founded Bullfrog Productions. The name was derived from a combination of things. Firstly, their previous company, named Taurus, which was Latin for bull. And secondly, Molyneux's daughter's love for uh, frogs. So you combine them together and you get the bullfrog, which is a real thing. So hey, why not? Let's call it bullfrog. Uh, they proceeded to release a vertical scrolling shooter named Fusion, which was moderately well-reviewed, despite the fact that it was yet another vertical scrolling shooter like, I guess, Galaga or, or other games like that. After that, in 1989, came the game that would put them on the map, Populous. Populous was described as the first PC god game, and I will likely cover it in the future. Uh, this game gave you the role of a deity presiding over you know, a people. This led to a 1990 real-time strategy game called Powermonger. And you know, with, the, with Populous and then Powermonger, a bit of a trend emerged here, which Molyneux explains in a little blurb in the Syndicate Manual. He says... In Populous, we simulated a whole world. In Powermonger, we simulated a country. But in Syndicate, we are simulating a city. This is really hard to do because the more detail you put in, the more problems you have. For example, even seemingly easy things like people crossing the road had to be designed. In fact, the code that Sean produced for roads is huge. So that's a great quote. And talking about those roads, uh, you can observe this behavior in the game. People don't just randomly wander across on, wander around or, you know, across or on roads. They come to a road, they pause, and if a car is coming by, they wait for it, and then they cross the street. Also, people will only cross roads or walk on them if they absolutely have to. Uh, Sean Cooper, assistant producer and programmer, agrees in the interview that the living city aspect of Syndicate was the most challenging thing to create. All the cities you enter have life. There are people walking around seemingly on their own errands, cars driving by, again, with a destination in mind. Some of the maps are quite large with multiple levels and, and very complex road networks. So Syndicate began development in 1990 and took three years to develop. It released simultaneously for the PC and Amiga, although all the original programming work was done with the PC in mind. Uh, this again led to some complex challenges converting the game for the Amiga. One of the largest challenges was porting the game with this full feature set over to the Amiga, which had less available memory than comparable PCs at the time. Additionally, the initially ported PC code ran dog slow on the Amiga. They were able to optimize things, though at the end of the day it actually necessitated a full rewrite of all the graphics routines. Uh, the game released a great reviews. There was a bit of controversy around Syndicate due to its extreme levels of violence. Unlike other violent games like Doom and whatever, which had you killing monsters, robots, or fantasy creatures, Syndicate had you roaming freely in a realistic-looking city where you could kill not only enemies, but civilians as well. In addition, just to win the game, I mean, you had to be fairly, fairly ruthless. You know, kill your enemies without abandon, not worry about collateral damage, and, you know, set off explosions and, and all that, so... You know, obviously some uh, some game reviewers and some industry magazines and some parents groups and all that really did uh, take some exception to, uh, to Syndicate. 
shortly after the release, an expansion pack called American Revolt was released. Uh, now that your syndicate at the end of the first game rules the world, subjugated territories are tired of the overtaxation and poor living conditions, and uh, they are in revolt. And the remaining small rival syndicates are using the opportunity to destabilize you. This pack contained 21 new missions and uh, a couple of new weapons and you know other cool improvements like that. So that all came out in 1993. Three years later, in 1996, a true sequel was released called Syndicate Wars. This game finds your syndicate, now officially called Eurocorp, at the height of its power. However, a computer virus is spreading through the network and disrupting syndicate communications. It's also disrupting the population's chip implants and showing them what the real world really looks like. It's being spread by a fanatical group known as the Church of the New Epoch. The bulk of this game is spent combating the church and regaining your foothold on the planet. Uh, here's a bit of the audio from the intro to Syndicate Wars. The imminent merger of Yamaguchi and Jell pushed hexagon shares up 3.2 points today with the announcement that disruption to polar links will continue. solutions are already Good morning, Susan. Congratulations on your promotion. Welcome to Utopia Today. I am Detroit AI, and this is Utopia Level 9. Have a profitable day, Executive. Do not be afraid. This is the way of the new epoch. You alright, sir? Unidentified code execution. Fail safe and locked out. Utopia bandwidth jammed. Let us give this to the cataclysm. We're losing him. Move along. Keep moving. Syndicate Wars was rendered in full 3D, and while it was still on isometric view, it could be fully rotated around. You could play either as Eurocorp or the Church. And another cool option is that you have the ability to survey the whole mission map before entering with your agents, which again makes sense if you're hovering over the mission area, you know, in, in an airship. This allowed you to set up your approach for the upcoming mission. Uh, as you could hear in the intro, the music was full digital audio with a pretty rocking electronic score. The music of Syndicate Wars was quite memorable to me, and I you know, have a lot of strong memories of Syndicate Wars, and it also released and reviewed quite well. You are listening to the so is there any current news for the Syndicate series? Yes, there in fact is. Back in February of this year, 2012, Electronic Arts released a new game in the Syndicate series. It was developed by Starbreeze Studios and uh, was designed as a straight-up first-person shooter. Obviously, this is a little bit disappointing since Syndicate fans obviously would have loved a new real-time tactics game. But uh, interestingly enough, the game has reviewed quite well. Reviewers praise its engaging world interesting weapons, and great gameplay. If you want to give Syndicate 2012 a go, it's available on EA's Origin service. So since we just talked about where we could get Syndicate 2012, we might as well talk about where we can get the original Syndicate today. Well, luckily, Syndicate is again available via GOG.com for $5.99 US. Uh, if you want to pick it up, I would love it 
I know I've mentioned this a bit in the past, but I haven't mentioned it in a while. Uh, if you guys do want to pick this up via GOG, you can click on the banner on my show site. This gives me a little tiny kickback on, uh, on the purchase that I can put back into paying for web hosting and all that other podcast uh, rigmarole that, that costs a little bit of money. Uh, I played the GOG version and it works really, really well. You just install it, click the icon and boom, you're running your agents around massacring everything. It's really quite wonderful. Uh, I know that sounds a little odd, but uh, with regard to the game, yeah, that's it. It's a lot of fun. So before we get to the big question of the show, uh, I got a voicemail from one of my buddies over at the Treks in Sci-Fi forums, Paul Evans. So take it away, Paul. Hi, I'm Paul Evans, Paulie Cozy from the Treks in Sci-Fi forums. Thought I'd try and get a voice comment in for this podcast. Syndicate is one of my all-time favorite games from one of my favorite studios. Output of studios like Bullfrog in the UK helped continue to inspire me to go chase a career in the video games industry. It was great to know that games like that could be made in the UK. I played this first on my Amiga, but uh, knowing that you were going to cover this, I bought it from good old games so I could see what the DOS version is like. Perhaps my rose-tinted memory of the Amiga could be playing into this, but I could swear that it sounded better and looked better on the Amiga. It still looks and feels pretty good on the DOS box version, though. So it's a harsh game set in a harsh world. It will let you make mistakes, um, make really poor loadouts when you're choosing your team, and fail terribly. But that's like recent indie games like uh, Faster Than My FTL where decisions you make can cause early death or character death. And those, those things are permanent. Unlike FTL, though, you can actually save games you can go back to. The weapons are really fun in the game. There's usually more than one strategy that will rent levels, and because of the simulated na nature of the world, a little bit of sandbox madness goes into that, too. I know many developers that would have liked to go back and redo a modern version of Syndicate. We're playing the game for the first time in well over a decade and I, I can see why. The menus are hard to navigate. I, I end up going to the main screen too much and going to the wrong place instead of the brief and perhaps that's just me. But um, gameplay wise it does hold up. I mean uh, I suppose if, if I was to say a, a modern version would have to have transparent ceiling so you can see what happens when your little guy goes in rather than blind targeting a, a blip on the status scanner but uh, yeah the the GUI as well uh, could do with a bit of a revamp things should be in, in probably in different places and you could you could do you could do quite a lot of things but this is all um, like new coats of paint the, the the sound design still holds up. Could do with its resampling if you were to do a modern version. Again, the graphics don't scale up very well in my laptop screen, but if they're redrawn sprites bigger, they would look great. And they look great in the little window on the desktop. So I suppose in closing, the original Syndicate is certainly not a game I'd throw a non-gamer into because it really requires looking through the manual to get the best from it. But one could argue that's the fun of playing these retro games. It reminds you that those kind of things are what you have to do. So anyway, if you're if you're a gamer and you've not played it, and what a fun challenge! I don't think there's anything quite like it on the market today. So give it a shot. Cheers. Thank you so much, Paul. And uh, you know you're you're not wrong. The Amiga version most definitely did sound better than the PC version. I know the the PC sounds are actually quite muddy and uh difficult to uh difficult to understand and uh i haven't played the amiga version i i was able to look at some video and hear the sounds and i th think the graphics are actually a little bit sharper looking and you know that may have been because of uh of the graphics engine rewrite that was required to even make the thing run at all on the amiga and all that but you know thanks so much for that uh, for that review and you know you said a couple things that i missed and and you're right it's definitely not a game that i'd throw a non-gamer especially a non-gamer of today into because exactly that there's like xcom uh there's no tutorial there's no anything the menus aren't entirely intuitive you can't 
click on things. You have to click on buttons on other sides of the screen to affect something in the main window. But, you know, past putting all that aside, yeah, you know, um, I guess um, that's the next thing to come up. And I'll, I'll talk about it in, in just a moment as to whether or not it holds up. But, uh, but I, I can't help uh, but agree with, uh, with your evaluation. Hi, this is Rick Moyer. And this is Amy Moyer. And we are the hosts of Take Him With You. The weekly podcast where we discuss life at the geeky Moyer's home. And then we talk about our faith and how it relates to the world around us. Very, very positive podcast. And we think you really enjoy it. And I love Star Trek and heavy metal music. And I like Star Trek. And heavy metal music. And I hate heavy metal music. (laughs) Hate is a strong word. Oh, well, you got to understand when you're recording. Give in to your hate, Amy. When you're recording and you go over and over those loud, obnoxious riffs, you know, mm-hmm. I do not like the loud guitar. You're talking about the parody songs that I do. Some of them I like. Give in to your hate. You've done some big band songs and some soft songs that I've liked. Yeah, well, anyway. Yeah, I just don't really like the heavy metal. Want to hear more of our banter? You can by listening to our podcast. Where can they find it? You can find it at TakeHimWithYou.com or iTunes. That's right, iTunes. Yes. So you can tune in. and. But I do like some sci-fi. Amy, I'm your husband. (laughs) I like Star Trek and I like like Babylon 5. Make it so. Some different questions. We're going too long now. Let's go away. You don't know the power of the podcast. Take it with you. That was kind of like Darth Vader. (laughs) So. Big question of the show. I may have telescoped it a little bit, but uh, does Syndicate hold up today? Honestly, I will say yes on this with one caveat. Like Paul said, you need to read at least the background and overview sections of the manual. The game has very, very little story development as you play, and the bulk of the missions are basically just standalone affairs. If you put yourself in the mindset of the universe, then this is a damned cool game. The graphics are a bit cartoony. They don't scale up that well. But, uh, you know, aside from that, it actually does, I feel, help them from looking overly dated because there is a bit of a style to them. Uh, The sound on the PC version is certainly a bit muddy, but overall, this is a very enjoyable game. So with that verdict in your heads, uh, I guess that will be it for another show. I hope everyone had a blast. I hope people do decide to go and give Syndicate a whirl because it really, really is a very unique game. And, uh, you know, there are not, as it was said, many other games like it. So next week, we blast off into space with the Star Control series. This should be a lot of fun. I I haven't played these games very much, but uh, what little I do remember of them, they're pretty complex. They're funny and, uh, and other stuff like that so thanks so much to andreas and paul for your emails i love hearing from you guys so please everyone feel free to send email or audio comments to podcast at umbcast.com you all just make the show better i hate it when it's just me talking for a whole hour because god knows as i've said in the past i wouldn't want to listen to myself blathering on for an hour or so having some different voices in there some different opinions whether they agree with me or disagree with me or calling me out on something that i said wrong or talking about a game you want me to cover or anything like that, please send in your emails. I really do enjoy getting them. Thank you to Rick Moyer once again, as usual, for his great audio work. You can find him over at moyermultimedia.com or, as you heard in little promo, you can listen to his Take Him With You podcast that he does with his wife, Amy. Uh, You can check out the show notes for the Upper Memory Block podcast at umbcast.com. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash umbcast i and a bunch of other people post up cool news articles and other things like that sales and everything that you could find that's related to old you know retro pc gaming it's all going up over there uh you can follow the show on twitter 
at twitter.com slash UMB show and me personally at twitter.com slash billybob476. And of course, as usual, you can subscribe to the show on iTunes. I'd love it if uh, you guys could leave me a little review over there. I know on the US store, I have just enough reviews to receive an average rating of five stars. So thank you very much to everyone who's already posted reviews. I got a couple of reviews on the Canadian store on, you know, whatever country you're from, wherever you live, post on your iTunes store. I'd love to get as much, you know, exposure out there as, as I can to get people to find the show and, and come listen and come reminisce and, uh, and, and talk about these games with us. So that's it. Again, thank you guys all, and we will see you next week for Star Control here in the Upper Memory Block. Battle Control terminated. You've been listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast with Joe Mastroianni. For more information on the podcast, visit umbcast.com that's umbcast.com write to joe today at podcast at umbcast.com that's podcast at umbcast.com so what shall it be do you join the unity or do you die here join the unity